If you have your Bibles, let's turn together to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We're going to read from verse 12 to verse 32. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to share together, and we thank you for your holy word. And Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit this morning. I ask for your help. I ask for you to enable me to speak your word, and I ask, Father, that you would enable us to have ears to hear your word, and that we would learn the things that you have designed for us to learn in the retelling of this event. 
And Father, we, we turn our ears to you and to your word. We listen. We pray that uh, you would help us all. And most of all, Lord, as this last verse we read, that you would glorify your son and glorify yourself in your son, that we would see you in a fresh way this morning. We would be freshly amazed. And Lord, we would praise you for being such an awesome God and Savior. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being Christians and of knowing you and of knowing your son and knowing your salvation and having this time at Christmas to remember uh, in particular when you gave your son when he came to earth. So Lord, help us in Jesus' name, for your namesake, amen. We are still in the upper room with Jesus and his 12 disciples. It's the final night before Jesus' crucifixion. The Passover meal has just been served. This meal is known to us as Christians as the Last Supper, the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before he died. And Jesus, as we jump into the middle of this story, has just washed the disciples' feet, washed all 12 of them and their feet. Now, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before last, we saw how Peter mounted a fierce protest to Jesus washing his feet. And he voiced everybody's surprise and consternation when he said, no, you'll not wash my feet. This is wrong. And Jesus, if you look again at verse 8 with me, responded to him by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That was Jesus' response to Peter's protest. So what was happening there was bigger than just simply washing feet. And you can see that in Jesus' words in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. This is bigger than foot washing. The necessary thing here is not just that Peter gets his feet washed. That's not the necessary thing. He's not, Jesus is not saying to Peter, Peter, your feet stink so bad. <laughs> If I do not wash them, you have no part with me because I just can't have you around any longer, right? The important thing is that I wash your feet. The, the necessary thing is that Peter sees reality as it is and that Peter understands the Messiah for who the Messiah is, Jesus for who he is, God for who he is. The necessary thing that Peter's fighting against but that he needs to understand is the preposterous condescension and love of God for sinners symbolized by the foot washing. So Peter's protesting this because, Lord, you're the Messiah. You're the superior one. You're not supposed to serve me. If anything, I'm supposed to serve you. And Jesus says, if you resist what I'm doing, you don't understand God and you don't understand me. You've got it all wrong and you cannot be with me and have a part with me. It's an amazing thing. The foot washing, of course, was a symbol of what Jesus was about to do, which was die for sinners and wash sinners clean by his blood. And the amazing thing is this, as Christians, being a Christian means this very thing. Being a Christian means recognizing and believing in the surprising 
glorious good news that God has served sinners and that salvation is obtained by God serving sinners and not by us serving God. Isn't that amazing? Let me say that again. Being a Christian means recognizing and believing the glorious and surprising good news that God has served sinners and that salvation is obtained by God serving you and not by you serving God in any way, but only by God serving you. Isn't that amazing? That's what being a Christian is all about. A glorious message that we believe and that we have to share. Amen? That's unlike any other message that any religion could give. So we've already learned some amazing lessons from this upper room, and we're going to learn some more, Lord willing, this morning from this historic night. So we're going to keep going in the text this morning. I've divided my sermon up into three sections, and I've just basically divided the passage we've read into three sections. We'll go through them in order. Number one, we'll look at verse 12 to 17, and we'll consider the lesson that Jesus gave after he washed the disciples' feet. When he was all finished, he spoke. We'll look at that lesson. Number two, verse 18 to 30, we will consider the lesson of the betrayal. And lastly, verse 31 to 32, the lesson of Christ's glorification. So number one, the lesson Jesus gave after he washed the disciples' feet feet. So if you see in verse 12, immediately after he finishes washing the feet, he puts on his dinner garments again and he sits back down or he reclines at the table. They would all be laying down at this table. And he begins to teach. We see Jesus says in verse 12, after washing their feet, do you know what I have done to you? Now I love this question. I love this question because like all of God's questions in the Bible, this question invites us to go deep, doesn't it? I mean, you can read this question in a very superficial way and you could just say, do you know what I've done to you? Yes, you have washed our feet, right? And that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's inviting us, as, like I said, with all of God's questions, he, he invites us to think deeply about what he has just done, right? So Jesus acts, he does something, and we can look at that on the surface or we can look below the surface, and that's what he wants us to do. Jesus demands that we understand what it means, what it signifies, what are the consequences now, what are the ramifications, what does it mean for your life now that I've done this for you? Do you know what I have done to you? If I were to insert a paraphrase into there, I would put this. I, I have just rocked your world. I have just changed your life forever. I've just shattered your paradigms, the way you think about things, and I've given you an entirely new way of thinking by what I've just done to you. So now whenever you think about the Messiah... You can never rightly think about the Messiah unless you think of the Messiah as a preposterous servant. You don't think about the Messiah as a preposterous servant. You're not thinking about the Messiah as he really is. 
You can never rightly think about God anymore unless you think about God as a preposterous servant. You can't do it. Otherwise, you're not thinking about God as he is anymore. Because by that action, he's changed everything. Conventional views of Messiah and of God have been shattered by Jesus. And this new seemingly indecorous revelation has come. What do I mean by indecorous? Well, the word indecorous means something that's improper. It seems out of place and wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. And that's exactly what Peter said to Jesus, right? When Jesus came to wash his feet. No, 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 no. You shouldn't be doing it. It's indecorous. Peter thought Jesus washing his feet was improper. Pharisees thought Jesus eating with sinners and harlots and tax collectors was improper. And the world has thought that the justification of sinners by grace through faith alone, apart from any works, is improper, right? No, you can't just save. You can't just believe in Jesus. How many times have you heard this from someone who's not a Christian, right? It's got to be more than that. That's wrong, improper, indecorous. Sinners can't just go to heaven by grace through faith. You have to do something. And what about all these good people in the world who don't believe in Jesus? It would be surely indecorous of God to send them to hell, right? Because they're good. So it doesn't seem right to this world, but Jesus is shattering what we think is right. And he's showing us what is truly right. And he doesn't shatter our paradigms, brothers and sisters, by repudiating our understanding of God as superior. So the message of Jesus is not, Peter, you shouldn't think it beneath me to wash your feet because I really am not your superior, right? Or, you know, you shouldn't think God's so exalted that he, uh, you know, he's actually not as exalted as you think. The angels do take breaks up there, you know, singing, holy, holy, holy. Surely God can come down and wash feet, and you shouldn't be so surprised. I mean, he's kind of more your equal than you think. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. You're not wrong that I'm your superior. You're not wrong that from a worldly perspective, it's indecorous. But from a heavenly perspective, I, your superior, I, the one who is above you, I am washing your feet. And that's the wonder of it, is that our superior is serving us. And it is surprising, and it doesn't lower his greatness. It actually magnifies his greatness. Amen? So it's so awesome about God. But it is surprising. So far in the passage, we've considered the wonder of God serving us. But in verse 14 through 17, Jesus now turns to another wonder. The wonder of us serving one another. Is it any less surprising? Maybe a little. So there's two things going on with the foot washing here. Number one, it's a symbol of Jesus' death and his preposterous service. It's a symbol of the preposterous service of God for sinners. But the other thing that's going on here in the foot washing is Jesus is giving us an example to follow as well. So these, these two things going on. A 
symbol and an example for us to follow. I've enjoyed reading Frederick Brenner's commentary on the Gospel of John, and he says this, just kind of succinctly summarizes what this is, what's going on here with the foot washing. He says, quote, Jesus' foot washing not only teaches the Christian gospel, but it also teaches the Christian ethic. We are to love and to serve one another. And so Jesus says in verse 14 through 16, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did unto you. Now he's saying this to his 12 disciples, but this is timeless and relevant for you and I. So please hear Jesus looking you directly in the eye and saying this, all right? I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. He argues from the greater to the lesser. If the superior has done this, much more the inferior. And Marcus Dodds rightly comments, Therefore the slave may well stoop to the office which the Lord himself discharges and count on no exemptions the Lord does not claim. Now, none of this is for our salvation. You get the order backwards if you think that, right? That's like saying, now if you don't wash other people's feet and serve and love them, I won't wash and serve your feet and save you, right? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, you, you really cannot wash and love and serve the feet of others unless you've been served by the Lord. Amen? It's because he has saved us. It's because he has washed us. It's because in his humility he has given us that preposterous service that we are to imitate him and to render service to one another in light of what he's done. And that's what Paul says, and that's what all the apostles continue to teach after Jesus left. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he says in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus has already done this. Being in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something that was to be um, grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. He put on the form of a servant, and he served us. And Paul is saying he's already done that. He's loved us. Let us also now have that same mind. I love this statement from Augustine. As I was reading his sermons on the Gospel of John, he said this, We have learned, brethren, humility from the highest. Isn't that amazing? We have learned, brethren, humility from the highest. It's because of what God has done that we've learned what service and humility is. We've learned humility from God. Isn't that crazy? Humility has come, but it's come from God. And the amazing thing is God didn't only descend to the low level of humanity, but to the low level of humanity's feet. Actually, even further than that, to the low level of humanity's sin, shame, and death, to the very lowest point of humanity in order to serve us 
and to lift us up. It's amazing. So we've learned humility from the highest. So as you think about humility in your own life, you know, this idea of humility, this need for humility, and the example of humility, remember where it came from. It came from the highest. And turn with me to verse 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's one thing to know about it, hear about it, talk about it, but it's another thing to actually do it. It's another thing to actually serve one another and love one another and walk in humility towards one another. And he says, you, find, you will find joy in imitating Jesus. Now, how many of you want to be happy? Everybody, right? We all want to be happy. We all want to be really happy. And Jesus, the neat thing about Jesus is he knows that. And he tells us in many places how to be happy, doesn't he? The word blessed means happy. Happy are you if you do this. So in many places, Jesus tells us you're happy if you do this. You're happy if you do that. And this is one of those places. So are we listening? So our response to what Jesus has done is, to, is twofold. Number one, we are to receive his service and we are to render that same service to others and happy are we if we not only hear but we also do amen now before moving to my second section i'd like to make one more crucial point about jesus's teaching here after he washes the feet and this is this what jesus is teaching here is not the golden rule He's not teaching the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So what Jesus is teaching here is not, you know, you would want other people to serve you, so you should serve other people. That's not what he's teaching. Randolph Tasker comments, it is clearly inadequate to regard this symbolic action solely as a striking example of the nobility of serving others such as might have been given by any good ethical teacher. Do you think that's true? Is Jesus teaching a lesson here that pretty much any good ethical teacher could have taught? Because we all should know that the golden rule, by the way, is, is taught by all religions, all ethical teachers. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a basic ethical principle. It's a good one. Is that all Jesus is doing? Hey, guys, remember the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what this is all about right now. But I think Tasker is right. Something more is going on here. And what's going on here is this. It is not do unto others as you would want them to do to you, but do unto others as I have done to you. That is the reason and the motivation for serving and loving others, according to Jesus now. Because I have done it, you do it. This is bigger than the golden rule. This is now realizing because God himself has preposterously served mankind with that knowledge, now you go and serve mankind. So this is something that non-Christians can't do. Do you understand? This kind of service. Non-Christians can pursue the golden rule. They could wash your feet. But if they wash their feet because they think, you know, washing your feet is what I would want someone 
Washing feet is what I would want someone to do for me, so I'm going to go wash other people's feet. That's a nice thing. That's a good thing. But that is not what Jesus is saying. When we serve one another out of the knowledge that God has served us in this preposterous way, when we know the gospel and then we serve because of that, only then are we truly the servants of Christ and only then are we spreading his particular love and service and good news to the world when we serve for that reason. It's a big difference. A big difference comes in when we consider why we're doing what we're doing. So I would encourage us all to, to remember what Jesus has done for us. And as we put on our servant's apron, as we get dressed in the morning, let's put it on remembering this is what God has done. And I'm imitating God and spreading his love in the world. Number two, the lesson of the betrayal. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, the lesson on humble service merges almost imperceptibly into the warning that there was one among them for whom such a lesson had ceased to have any meaning. So you notice how Jesus goes right from talking about the servant is not above the master. If you do these things, blessed are you. And I've given you an example. Right into talking about his betrayal in verse 18, if you see with me there in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. In other words, not everybody can do this because this is not the golden rule. This is Christian service that comes from believing in Jesus and understanding who Jesus is and then <coughs> imitating what Jesus has done. I don't speak of all of you. Jesus knows all the 12, including Jesus, just as Jesus knows all of us. And he knows that one among them does not believe in him and in fact hates him. Jesus has been turning the world upside down and shattering the world's paradigms. And there was one among them that hated Jesus and expressed total contempt for him. I mean, it's amazing what, Jesus, what Judas was doing. As Jesus is spreading the truth about God, Judas does not receive it. And Judas expresses contempt by selling him out for a little bit of money. He's basically saying, this teacher's totally worthless. Right? One of the questions we often ask is, well, why on earth did Jesus choose Judas then, right? Was, was Jesus taken by surprise? Like Julius Caesar, when Brutus was there stabbing Julius Caesar, you too, Brutus, right? Is that what was going on here with Jesus and Judas? You too, Judas? No, and Jesus makes that very clear here, that it was that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus knew all along that Judas was a devil. And so no, Jesus was not taken by surprise, but it was that the scripture might be fulfilled, that he chose Judas to be among the 12, knowing what that would result in. And Jesus constantly tells us that he's going to be betrayed because Jesus seeks to encourage the church that despite the extreme evil of someone so close to him betraying him, 
Jesus was not taken by surprise. He knew that that was going to happen and that he was, God was actually in control of all of that, knew it in advance, was working it all out according to his will. Because that's a pretty shocking thing. I mean, if we didn't know it was the will of God, if we didn't know Jesus knew, if we didn't know God was in control, we might think, oh my goodness, Jesus shows his weakness here. He invited someone into his circle who was actually against him. Maybe Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe the crucifixion was a big tragedy and mistake, right? So Jesus encourages us again and again that he knew and God was in control. That's the great encouraging thing about all prophecy, isn't it? That God tells us in advance that he's in control, even over the bad stuff, right? Prophecy is often, often talks about bad stuff. It talks about good stuff too, but it talks about bad stuff and it encourages us as Jesus says in verse 19, so when it comes to pass, you'll believe. Because I told you already. That's the beauty of prophecy. We should be encouraged. Now, look at verse 20. Jesus says something that he actually said quite a bit. You can read him say this in the Synoptic Gospels as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So we've talked about this a lot, but because Jesus comes from the Father and, and represents the Father in all that he says and does by communicating the truth about the Father, to reject Jesus is really just to reject the Father. And likewise, to reject those whom Jesus sends, who brings the truth, the apostles, or even any Christian who preaches the truth, to reject them is to reject Jesus and is to reject the Father. So there's that chain. But why does Jesus bring this up right here? I think Jesus here is looking ahead, actually, to more betrayals to come. I think Jesus, thinking about his own betrayal, is looking ahead to more betrayals to come. Jesus says this exact same thing, basically verbatim, in Matthew chapter 10. You'll remember that's where Jesus sends out the apostles to preach. And he says this very thing, whoever doesn't receive you doesn't receive me and the Father, but whoever receives you as you preach the gospel receives me and receives the Father. But he says that this is going to rip families apart. And he says brothers will betray brothers. Children will betray parents. Parents will betray children. In other words, Judas's betrayal of Jesus isn't unique. It's not the end. It's going to happen again and again and again wherever God is represented on the earth by people preaching the truth. Sobering thought, isn't it? What, happened, what happens to me will happen to you, he's telling them. That's how connected we are with Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is encouraging his disciples, rejoice when that happens. Just as I'm rejoicing, because you're in good company and you're representing the Father, and it's the Father whom they're actually hating. And that's also frightening for those who reject Jesus and who reject the apostles and who reject Christians, because they're not just rejecting human beings, they're actually rejecting the Father. Judas is betraying God. It's a frightening thing. We should learn from this to never take lightly the presence and mission of the church. 
or the presence and the preaching of Christians. Where the church is, God is. Where the gospel is, Christ is. And as people preach the gospel, where that's embraced or rejected, God is being embraced or rejected. So don't, don't forget that, you know, that... Don't think, oh, God's up in heaven far away. Actually, God is here in the truth that we proclaim. In verse 21, we see that Jesus is troubled. Why was he troubled if he knew that Judas would betray him and if he knew it was a part of God's plan? It says he became troubled in spirit, and we've seen that before at Lazarus' tomb. We ask the same question, right? Why is Jesus troubled at Lazarus' tomb when Jesus orchestrated Lazarus' death, right? Why was Jesus troubled when the Greeks came to him? Isn't it a good thing that the Gentiles are seeking him now? The simple answer to those questions is he's troubled because these things, even though he knows them and even though they're a part of God's plan, remain painful. Have you found that to be true in your own life? That even when you know God is in control, God is working all things together for my good, right? It still hurts. It still hurts to be betrayed by a friend. It still hurts to stand before the tomb of a loved one, even though you know God is in control. It still hurts to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And Jesus shows us that it's not wrong to feel that. Jesus announces for the very first time to his disciples that he's going to be betrayed by one of them. So you'll, you'll remember that he's told his disciples already he's going to be betrayed. But here's the first time he says, it's going to be one of you. And the disciples, how do they respond to that? I knew it. Is that what they do? <laughs> one of you will betray me. I had a hunch this whole time. No. <laughs> They're utterly shocked. You can see that in verse 22 and on. They're at a loss. They really did not think one of them was capable of doing that or would do that. We see here how good Judas was at hiding. Not only did they not detect him at all before, but even right then and there, Judas would have probably looked around surprised too, right? What? And they didn't detect it was him. Wait, everyone else is surprised but Judas. What's going on here, right? That didn't happen. Religious hypocrisy is a terrifying thing. In verse 23, John tells us there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. The historical consensus is that that is John. John is now writing about himself in the third person in a kind of indirect way. He's writing about himself. And John famously calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. 
Now, when John writes he's the disciple of, that Jesus loved who is leaning on the bosom of Jesus, I think we should take away two things from that. Number one, we should not take away from it that John is saying, I and I alone am the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, not the other 11 and not anyone else, me. The thing we should take away is simply this. John expresses his profound sense of being loved by Jesus. That's all. He's just expressing the fact that he knows he's loved by Jesus. And he's not being exclusive. In fact, it's a lesson for us all. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a disciple that Jesus loves. So if you're a Christian, please take that statement for your own. The other thing we should take away from this verse is that John is leaning on Jesus' bosom, which is an intimate place, right? You don't just go lean on anybody's bosom. <laughs> that communicates deep friendship and intimacy and closeness. And I think John intentionally brings in here an echo of what he says in chapter 1, verse 18 in his prologue, and that is that Jesus, the Word, the only begotten Son of the Father, is in the bosom of the Father, right? And so what does it mean that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father? Well, it kind of means like John is in the bosom of Jesus, intimate, intimately acquainted and close. And for that reason, because Jesus is in the bosom of the Father in that most intimate place. He's able to reveal the Father because of that acquaintance he has with him. So also the Apostle John is able to reveal to us who Jesus is because he knows Jesus so well. So isn't that what's going on with the Gospel of John? John, someone who's laying on the bosom of Jesus, is telling us about Jesus, someone who is in the bosom of the Father, revealing to us who the Father is. And what's more, I believe that you and I, brothers and sisters, are invited into the bosom of Jesus by John. Because what John wants to do is make us intimately acquainted with who Jesus is, right? And do you think when you see Jesus as his disciple, when you and Jesus are reunited in the future, Will you be able to lean on Jesus' bosom, do you think? I mean, we're going to share a big meal together, according to Scripture, right? You're going to be there with Jesus, physically in your body. Will you feel like you can go up to Jesus and embrace him and put your head upon his chest? Or do you think he'll say, whoa, <laughs> come on, we're not that close, Right? I don't know who you think we are here. I don't think so. And if we can approach Jesus in the future as his beloved disciples, as his brethren, as his sheep that he carries on his shoulders, then even now we are intimately acquainted with him. John invites us into the bosom of Jesus, and Jesus invites us into the bosom of the Father and so as a Christian, I believe all Christians, if you could accept this and see this, it's hard to see, I know, you're actually in the bosom of the Father as a believer because you know him.
and he loves you and he knows you. It's a beautiful picture. Peter the go-getter has to know. So he asks John to ask Jesus, because John is close to Jesus, who it is. And Jesus, in a discreet way, points out that it's Judas, which also fulfills prophecy. He who eats my bread lifts up his heel against me. So Jesus literally takes bread, gives it to Judas, and Judas eats it. One thing that I read in several commentaries is that in the, uh, in the ancient world, um, to do this, what Jesus did by giving bread to a person like that, apparently that was kind of like giving a toast to somebody. So, you know, we raise our glass and we say, a toast to Dale, right? And I drink to your health, you know. That was kind of what that was. It was an action of of honoring the person that you gave the bread to. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, but several commentaries pointed that out. If that's true, what an interesting thing that Jesus is actually, in a sense, honoring Judas or serving Judas or loving Judas by doing that. But even if it's not like a toast, it's still a gesture of friendship to give somebody that bread, isn't it? And Randolph Tasker rightly comments, in accepting the sop, Judas shows himself completely impervious to the appeal of love. And from that moment, he's wholly the tool of Satan. So he's going to betray Jesus, and Jesus offers him some bread, and he actually takes the bread. I mean, his conscience isn't even like, I'm about to kill this guy. I probably should just say, no, no, thank you. I'm fine, you know. He's just like, sure, eat. He just shows, he's just, as I said, he has total contempt for Jesus. And he's wholly a tool of Satan. And he shows what kind of person he is by eating that. Jesus then commands Judas, or he issues a command. What you do, do quickly. Was that a command to Judas or was that a command to Satan? Probably both. But the amazing thing is that he gave a command and Judas obeyed that command. I mean, think about that. That the betrayal of Jesus was actually prompted by Jesus saying, go do it. Isn't that interesting? A.T. Lincoln comments, Ironically, even in his act of betrayal, Judas does what Jesus has told him to do. And Jesus says, go quickly in verse 27. In verse 30, we see Jesus, uh, Judas immediately goes out. He just listens. No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. I'm in total control. This is God's plan. This is my command. And my command to Judas is not a command to get a sinner away from me and out of my face. My command to Judas is actually to bring a world of sinners into my bosom. Isn't that amazing? I think Jesus is not just saying, get out of here, Judas, I don't want to see you anymore. But let's get on with saving the world. Finally, in verse 28 and 30, nobody knew why Judas left. The disciples are clueless. But Judas knows why Judas left. 
and it says he went out into the night. A child of darkness, a man filled with darkness, he goes into a night that's darker than just the physical night. Here's a man who's turned his back completely on God. What is the lesson of the betrayal? I think the lesson of the betrayal is this. No matter how evil or insidious a person or an action may be, God is in control working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I love what this one commentator said, G. Campbell Morgan, and he says this about this event but we can apply this to ourselves. We can apply this to our own lives. Do not look on the darkness merely. Know that through that very process and in, the, in that very way, in all that results from the things so dark, the Son of Man is glorified. And I think that's what we need to apply to our own lives. God even uses this darkness to glorify himself. Isn't that what Jesus says in the next section? And that brings me to my final point, and I just briefly close with 31 and 32. When, Jesus, when Judas goes out to betray him, Jesus then makes the announcement that the Son of Man is glorified. Verse 31 and 32 are essentially saying the same thing. The Son brings glory to the Father, and the Father brings glory to the Son they are glorified together and not separately. The glory of the Son and the glory of the Father are inseparable. That's essentially the point. And now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and the Father to be glorified as well. So all of this, according to Jesus, is, the, is for the glory of God. All of this is for the revelation of who God is. And no one can know the glory of God unless they know the Son and what he did at that hour on the cross, no one can know the glory of who God is in the Father apart from this. This is it. So non-Christians, Muslims, Jews, or even those who claim to be Christians but don't understand what Jesus has done on the cross, they do not know the glory of God. And they do not understand who he is. Only Christians know because only Christians have believed. And as I've said before, the glory that Jesus is talking about is not merely the glory that he receives on the other side of the cross and the tomb when he's exalted into heaven. It's not merely, I'm going to go through all this inglorious stuff, and because I go through all that inglorious stuff, I'm going to be exalted, and then you'll see me in my glory. But according to John in, in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, that the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Meaning, John saying, when Jesus was in the flesh, we looked at him and beheld his glory. We saw his glory in the days of his flesh and in the cross. So it's not just after the cross, after the tomb, later on, that we see the glory of God, but we see the glory of God when Jesus died for sinners to take away their sins, when Jesus washed sinners clean by his blood, when Jesus, knowing that the whole world is wicked and unrighteous and deserves wrath and punishment and to be cast away, 
took all of our sins and unrighteousness and provided for us an alien righteousness that we can't produce and that we can't earn, all by his grace. That's where the glory of God is seen. And that's when we can say, wow, I know who God is and he's awesome and he's glorious and he's totally righteous and pure and he's full of love, a love that's more than anything that this world could know or produce on their own. And he's full of this wondrous, surprising humility and servanthood that's completely preposterous in the human wisdom. And he's shown that in his hour of dying for us. And when we see Christ for who he really is, we see God and we say, glorious. So the revelation of God in Christ shatters our paradigms. It seems indecorous to the world. It seems improper. But to us Christians, it's wondrously beautiful. It seems like darkness is winning. It seems like evil is running rampant. But Christ shatters our paradigms there too. It says, even the most evil thing, God works together for good. We might think, what good can come of this? Well, Judas's sin is probably one of the worst sins ever committed. And what resulted was the salvation of the world, right? And it also shatters our paradigms in that we see the glory of God in the humiliation and suffering of Christ. So we either see what Jesus has revealed as offensive and indecorous and we fight against it, or we allow our paradigms to be shattered and our human wisdom to be shattered and we see the beauty of it and we receive it thankfully and gratefully and with awe. So brothers and sisters, may we be those who see the glory of God in Christ and receive that and rejoice in that and also render that same amazing love to those around us. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Lord, we thank you so much for your son. I thank you for Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the revelation of God in him. And Lord, I just pray that you would take these, um, these words that were spoken this morning. And I pray that you would use them, Lord, and impress your truth upon our hearts, that you are this awesome, wondrous God unlike anything this world understands. Help us to see, Lord, that as Christians, our sins are forgiven and we are loved and we are in your bosom. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to um, enjoy the glory of what you have revealed on a daily basis. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to uh, walk in that same love, realizing that this is what you have done Help us to follow your example as well, Lord. And I just thank you for this time again. Please impress these words upon our heart, Lord. Help us to see Jesus in a fresh way. Uh, this morning and as we go from here and tomorrow, help us not forget these beautiful things. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.